And I think that really is a huge moment in my career that I look back on. It was a pivotal moment. I could have either stepped back and said, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm not there. It's too hard. Or I could do what I did, which was look at the course and say, okay, now I know that this is what I have to do to compete against the best in the world. Even when you do cross the finish line in first, it's not necessarily the fact that you won. It's a fact that you achieved most likely all of those process goals on the way to winning. And I've found over the years that when I focus on those other goals is when the race actually turns out the best. Because at the end of the day, you can't control how anyone else races or even who shows up. Like, would you feel confident taking out a 20, 30 year mortgage at the moment? Like I've had this conversation with World Tour guys who are on the kind of one year rolling contracts and some of them are afraid to buy a couch in their house because they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be in this house next year. It gives rise to a very vulnerable, transient state. I bought a house this year. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Romance Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode number 592 of the Romance Cycling Podcast, and today I chat with Hannah Otto. Time for a little bit of business. Today's show is sponsored by Stages Cycling. Upgrading from a turbo trainer was an absolute game changer for me. No more constantly swapping bikes onto the trainer. Your indoor training setup is just there. It's ready for your session when you are. I remember years ago seeing a clip on YouTube of Floyd Landis and he had a proper indoor training setup. I remember thinking to myself, if I had that, it looks friction free. I'd ride like seven hours a day. Now, I've been using the Stages SB20 smart bike, and I have to say, it's really realistic and it's an immersive cycling experience. You can customize absolutely everything. You can even select the drivetrain to match your outdoor bike. I'm rocking Shimano. It's really comfortable. I've customized the fit to my exact spec out on the road. It has a Stages dual-sided power meter, configurable shifting, sprint buttons. The frame is so stiff and durable. It's rock solid when I'm sprinting. I've paired this up with Zwift, but it's compatible with loads of other apps like China Road and Ruby. And a feature I'm loving at the moment is, it's pretty simple, but it has the USB ports in the back so you can charge your phone and iPad as you go. If you want to get your hands on one of these, which I thoroughly recommend, head on over to stagescycling.com and use the checkout code ROADMANSB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. That's code ROADMANSB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. I'm going to throw all those details below in today's show notes. Roadman, thanks for joining me for another Roadman Cycling Podcast. You're going to love today's chat. I'm chatting with one of the best mountain bikers in the world, Hannah Otto. She is a pro mountain biker. She's a pro gravel racer. She's a USA certified coach. She's a certified athletic trainer. She's the winner Yes, you heard right, the winner of this year's Leadville Mountain Bike, one of the most coveted prizes in mountain biking. Really fascinating insights into the world of, the emerging world of gravel and the established world of mountain bike racing. I think you're going to love this one. Hannah Otto.
Hannah, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm really excited to jump in a little bit into your background because I don't know many people who started competitive sport, especially endurance sports, as early as you. Like, what age did you start in triathlon? I started triathlon at nine years old, which is definitely <laughs> unique and especially unique given the fact that no one in my family raced triathlon. It was uniquely my choice as a nine-year-old child that that was what I wanted to do. What was wrong with your parents? <laughs> I played soccer, which is a much more normal sport for a young nine-year-old. Um, and I always asked my mom if I could get to the field early to run laps before soccer practice would start. And so one day she finally just said, well, if all you want to do is run laps, do you want to do like a running race? And so she, and I said, yes. And so she signed me up for a little kids one mile fun run. And at that race, there was a booth advertising triathlon, um, a local triathlon. And I pointed at that booth and said, actually, that's what I want to do. And so she signed me up for a kids triathlon clinic. And I learned how to race triathlon and I raced triathlon for the next 11 years of my life. It must be so random as a child being exposed to it. Because I think the first time I knew about triathlon, I was probably like 18, 17, 18, when I first came across it. But as a child, it must be just three totally random sports thrown together. It must feel like ultimate frisbee, egg and spoon race and high jump. That could just as plausibly be a triathlon. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, I feel like in the last several years, five to 10 years, triathlon has really blown up. But when I was racing, especially back at nine, definitely my classmates in school had no idea what triathlon was. And most of the time, the teachers and parents and adults didn't even know. So triathlon um, was definitely new in the world that I was living in, at least. And I think that was something that was exciting to me about it, is it was just completely different. And it offered a totally different challenge and it offered variety and um, it offered autonomy too. It was something that when, as a little kid, when I was out there swimming or biking or running, I felt powerful and I felt capable. And that was really exciting. Do you have any children yourself? I do not, no. If you had your fictitious nine-year-old child, would you let them into triathlon with your life experience now? Oh yeah. I mean, I think as long as a kid is excited and interested in that and it's not something that's being pushed upon them. I think, like I said, it just gives a sense of capability um, to a young child. And that carries over in all aspects of life is if you can get across that finish line, if you can find a way to finish your ride or do something that you didn't think you could do before you started it, that'll carry over to, to school and to a more standard type of job in the workplace. It's learning tenacity and how to overcome obstacles. Was there any downsides to it? I'm thinking when I got into cycling, the long four or five hour rides on my own, I struggled with them a little bit as a 20 year old in the sport. I'm wondering, I guess as a nine year old, you're not really doing five hour rides, but there is a lot more solitude time than you typically have on a soccer team. Do you think that's a downside or to help you grow up a little faster? Um, I think that I just had to work a little bit harder to find those friendships because, you know, like I said, my mom signed me up for a triathlon camp. So 
I learned how to do it in the presence of a bunch of other, you know, nine-year-olds who were had equally as strange desires. And so, yeah, I mean, it was it's an individual endeavor out there, but I think that you learn a sense of competition and camaraderie that you don't necessarily get on the soccer field because a team sport isn't as vulnerable. You're out there with so many other people that the wins and the losses aren't as exposing. And so while that could be a negative because it is harder at a young age to experience, wow, I lost or I fell short of my goal. um, I think, like you said, it makes you grow up. It makes you learn what it means to celebrate others and to celebrate yourself when necessary and how to do that appropriately as well. I almost took a soccer scholarship across to a US university. I was really close to it. And some of my friends uh, have taken soccer scholarships to go across. And I remember back when I was playing soccer, I thought I was training hard and I was probably realistically training five or six hours a week. But you you don't have any comparison to people who are in triathlon cycling. So you think that is training hard and it is for you at that time. But I'm fascinated with how you balanced. Like you were the external world champion while also in uni. Like how does that balancing act work without the wheels just totally falling off your studies? <laughs> yeah, well, that was another thing is I, from a young age, I learned that school and education was the thing that would always come first. And so that was how my priorities were set out was that in high school, in university, school came first. But I absolutely loved sport. And that was something that I was extremely passionate about. So it meant that I had to find the time to put in the training that I needed to do. So in university, I much of the time was training before 6 a.m. I would wake up early and get on the bike around 5.45 was my standard starting time. I can't think of any two sports that are, you know, so many similarities, but when you're on the outside looking in, but then when you get inside, they're two totally, totally different sports from triathlon and mountain bike racing. Like the stereotype, at least this side of the pond for our triathletes is can't go around corners, stay away from them in group rides. They're going to kill you if you get too close. To go into mountain biking, which is just famed for the craziest bike handling skills. Like, how did you make that adjustment? And did you ever shake that label of like, stay away from her, she's the triathlon girl? <laughs> well, I certainly hope at this point I have. Um, but it was a a lot bigger transition than I think at surface value people give credit for, um, even probably myself. Because having raced Xterra, um, I mountain biked quite a bit. And I also did some mountain bike racing in high school, you know, but in my mind that was just for fun. It was high school racing. It was training for triathlon. I was so focused on triathlon. So when I switched over to mountain bike racing, it was a whole different sport. <laughs> it wasn't just eliminating the swim and the run and focusing on mountain biking. It was, it felt like a truly new experience. And that was really highlighted as I continued to move up the ranks because it only gets harder. And so I think the biggest eye-opening moment I had was when I 
went to my first World Cup and I went around that track for the very first time and saw the obstacles that I needed to be able to overcome. <laughs> it's like a skiing event. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I probably crashed more than a dozen times in that pre-ride, just trying to make oh it gosh. around the course. And I think that really is a huge moment in my career that I look back on because I think it was a pivotal moment. I could have either stepped back and said, you know what? This isn't for me. I'm not there. It's too hard. Where's my runners? Exactly. Or I could do what I did, which was look at the course and say, okay, now I know that this is what I have to do to compete against the best in the world. And you don't know until you know. And so that was my moment of now I know and I can work up to this. And that's what I've done. Well, isn't there something beautiful as well when you come into a sport like that? And I'm assuming you weren't winning the races off the bus. You're finishing races 25th, 30th position. But it gives you this amazing target because your progression is easy because you set these goals that are invisible to everyone else, but they're, they matter like more than anything in your own head. So your goal could be to crack into the top 20. And it's such an important goal to you, but no one really sees it. And it's a, almost a beautiful, wholesome time of progression. Absolutely. I have yet to hear anyone quite describe it so perfectly as that, because that's exactly that's exactly how it was. Um, I was finishing races, like you said, in 30th position. And a lot of the time, people would turn to me and ask, are you okay? Are you disappointed? <laughs> um, but I never, I never even experienced those emotions because maybe that was my goal for the day because all I ever wanted to do when I lined up was be better than I was last time. So I went from 30th to 25th to 20th to 15th and marking off those incremental improvements. I felt like I was winning the race. You know, it felt like, I because I was achieving my goal over and over and over again. And I knew that, Eventually, if I kept on that trajectory, I would get to a position where other people understood that I was achieving my goal as well. Well, isn't there like a beautiful message in there for anyone listening to the podcast? Because we're going to go on and we're going to talk about Leadville's and congratulations on that and Unbound and these cool gravel races. But not everybody gets to win these races. And the majority of people listening to the podcast, that's what it's going to be about for them is setting these goals at the start point. It could be a finish time goal. It could be, a, a, you know, on your stages, hitting a wattage target for the day. But it also, the goal can change within the race. Like I've been in races and, you know, I, I flatted twice inside the first 20, 30K or I've broke my DI2 inside the first 20K in Rift. And obviously I'm not going to be at the front of the race contending anymore, but you have this quiet, private, introspective moment where you say, okay, here's the facts. I'm in Iceland, I have no DI2, what's the new goal? And that goal is not advertised, but it's just as satisfying when you hit it. In many ways, it's more satisfying because I think even when you do cross the finish line in first, it's not necessarily the fact that you won. It's a fact that you achieved most likely all of those process goals on the way to winning. And I've found over the years that when I focus on those other goals is when the race actually turns out the best. Because at the end of the day, you can't control how anyone else races or even who shows up. And so to get caught up in what position you're in 
it's almost silly. I mean, it, it, don't get me wrong. I yeah. that's as a professional athlete, <laughs> that's something I have to look at. But I can't control if someone else goes out really fast and I'm panicking because I'm not in the position that I want to be in for the first half of the race. And yeah, I think it's an individual sport is is kind of what it is at the end of the day. And so focusing on yourself as an individual and the things that you can control and creating the experience that you want to have, because a lot of these events, that's what it is, is you're creating a memory and an experience out there and telling that story um, throughout the day is what's going to give you the most satisfaction when you cross the finish line. I want to move on from the triathlon stuff and put a pin in it because what you're doing is so exciting right now. And it's uh, in many cases, in many ways, a lot more exciting than your triathlon. But <laughs> just one last question on the sort of uh, transition, for want of a better word, from triathlon. Uh, triathlon, by its nature, the swim breaks people up. You're coming out in small enough groups, but it's largely we're getting a bit of separation straight away. And then we're into T1. And again, there's more separation with the speed people transition. So by the time you get onto the bike, there could be a few people around you, but it's definitely not a mass start mountain bike race, which is just notoriously hectic, technical, full gas off the line. Was that the most intimidating switch from triathlon to mountain bike? Or how did you deal with that? It was really hard. I mean, I would say that the most uh, intimidating switch was going, like I said, to those World Cup courses and experiencing those sort of technical features. But in terms of the training and the things that I had to just put in my dues for, you're right, it was probably the starts. Because that's also not really something that you know, I can go out on a Monday morning on my local trail and practice that. So it was about putting in the dues. Get 20 of your friends. Can you all call in sick, guys? I need you. <laughs> exactly. And experiencing what those starts were like. And so, yeah, it, it's definitely an intimidation factor for sure. Your schedule at the moment is totally wild. And I almost can't get behind the podcast. We have a cycling coaching company. And I almost can't get my head around how I would coach someone like you. And I mean that with the most respect because you're racing World Cup mountain bike races, which are so explosive, so technical. But all the way at the far end of that, you won Leadville this year. You're racing Unbounds, the Lifetime Grand Prix Series. And it's it's like they're, they're so far spread on the spectrum of different physiological requirements for these events how are you balancing or how are you finding the balance or do you regret taking on the balance? No, I've, I've really enjoyed the challenge. It's definitely, it's definitely very difficult. And I think I have put my coach up to the ultimate test this year by giving him this <laughs> schedule and saying, this is what I need to be prepared for. But yeah, it's different. It's hard. And I think my training has probably looked a lot different than most people out there this year. I think that the World Cups for me are what has demanded the biggest change in my physiology from triathlon. So that's a place where I've always put my focus in the training is those really explosive type of efforts. And I think that my time having started endurance sports so young, I just have a huge foundation that has allowed me to excel at these distance events based on training that I've done for years, not necessarily the months leading up. And I say that in the sense that 
leading up to my win at Leadville, I had not done more than a four-hour ride in over six weeks. Yeah, I was going to ask, so is your training a case of preserving your speed and then on race day, you know, holding on to legacy fitness that you've had for the years? More or less. I mean, if you want to really cut it down to the simplest formula, that's that's more or less. Um, I put in a huge base training season every year. So it's not just like, oh yeah, I did that several years ago. Um, but I think that what I've built as a foundation from years upon years of training and then what I do in the off in the off season or the big base training season, it really allows a foundation where I can do events like Leadville without putting in massive volume in the weeks leading up, which then allows me to just focus on that speed and explosive power. And so really the biggest challenge is just making sure that I'm rested enough from an event like Leadville to line up for a World Cup rather than the opposite of lining up for a World Cup and then trying to increase my endurance for an event like Leadville. Yeah, because I don't think a lot of people appreciate how fresh you need to be to get an adaptation from those really top-end efforts. And I raced on a US Criterium team for a year and the top crit guys, like they train so little, but when they train, they train so incredibly hard and fast. Whereas a lot of listeners, and I know a lot of clients when they come into us, they fall into this sort of gray zone of too much training in the middle. It's not slow enough and long enough to really build a base and it's not hard enough or fast enough to really build any top end. And that's definitely the number one mistake I see people making. And for your coach to have to navigate around freshening you up after an unbound or a Leadville to bring you fresh enough to so you can execute the high-end stuff for a mountain bike race, I don't envy his challenge at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a challenge, but I think the other element to it that's often overlooked is the mental aspect, um, which on one hand does bring in another element because you're trying to mentally prepare and remember what it's like to suffer for seven and a half hours and what it's like to suffer for 90 minutes. But I find <laughs> it really, I actually find it really refreshing. Um, and I think it's part of what's allowed me to race so much this year and to line up so many times, because if they were all one style of event, I think you're much more likely to experience that emotional, mental fatigue. But when it's so different all the time, it keeps things really fresh and exciting mentally. You've gone down the privateer, for want of a better word, I still don't think we've come up with a better word than privateer. <laughs> You've gone down the privateer route this year. Can you, maybe for a listener who's not too accustomed, kind of contrast, because you've been on some huge trade teams like the Cliff Pro Team, one of the best off-road teams potentially ever. Like, what's the upside of being a privateer versus uh, the downside of kind of missing out on that trade team environment? Yeah, absolutely. I, so a privateer is essentially, I have created my own team where I'm the only one on it. And so that means that I create my salary based on, um, and my budget for the season based on sponsorships of a variety of sponsors that have come together to create my support system. Um, so like I said, it's basically a team where I'm the only one on it. And for me, that's enabled me to do 
this crazy schedule. Um, that I couldn't have done this when I was on a trade team because there's too many moving pieces when you're involving a large system. It's hard to get that team to turn around from a race in Europe to then show up at a race like Leadville just a couple days later. But when you're one person, you're a lot more agile and you have the ability to plan it around yourself and your needs a little bit better. And so I've found it to be a really great experience for myself this year to have it be so personalized um, to be able to match the schedule that I want to maintain. And then also really exciting because I've been able to build the relationship with every sponsor individually. And I really have gotten to know the people behind the brands um, rather than kind of having a little bit of a wall up there when you're on some of these big trade teams. Usually the team manager will handle a lot of the sponsorships. And as a team member, you're a little bit more shielded from some of those relationships or finances or even sponsorship requests, um, which some people would see as a positive because it might be slightly less work. But I have found, at least at this point in my career, it to be hugely satisfying to be able to understand the needs of those sponsors so intimately um, that I feel like I feel like I'm able to do my job better as a professional athlete. It seems like there's a lot of upside to it, but I do wonder about the sustainability of athletes in this model. Like, are we only going to have privateers who are kind of young, free and single? Or is there, like, would you feel confident taking out a 20, 30 year mortgage at the moment? Like I've had this conversation with world tour guys who are on the kind of one year rolling contracts and some of them are afraid to buy a couch in their house because they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be in this house next year. It gives rise to a very vulnerable, transient state. I bought a house this year. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the big contracts, you see. <laughs> I mean, you, I think you see both sides of it. And that's where I think that um, the word privateer can be, we need different words because there's so many different levels and situations that people are in and one-year contracts versus a lot of my contracts are multi-year contracts that I have right now. And You better shout out your sponsor since they're giving you multi-year contracts. <laughs> we need to hear who they are. Yeah. Um, well, my privateer program is co-title sponsored by Pivot Cycles and DT Swiss. Um, and then I have What's Pivot a whole... Cycles? I haven't even heard of them. Are you serious? Yeah, I don't even know what they are. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, Pivot, it's a very big bike brand. Yeah, so I ride the Mach 4 SL and the Pivot Less um, on the mountain bike side, and then I ride the Vault on the gravel side. I don't know if we get that brand in Europe. I've never heard of that brand. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, yeah, so those are my two title sponsors. And then I have a whole host of other partners as well. And I think, I believe Stages is sponsoring this podcast, right? Which is one I sponsor as indeed. well. So we should definitely give them some love too. <laughs> so I'm sure you're rocking Stages across all your bikes? Yes, of course. <laughs> my girlfriend is currently about to throw me out of the apartment because Stages sent me their indoor bike. And I've been quite busy on the podcast schedule at the moment. So the apartment's not huge, but I do have a bike <laughs> room. But I decided to start building this bike because it weighs like 100 kilograms. Oh, I decided yeah. to start building it in the hallway. 
And now it's oh, kind of no. half built, like blocking the whole hallway. So she's trying to scramble over it with dogs getting past. And it's a whole mess. Just don't mention the war. It's fine. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, highly recommend to anyone who get the gets the stages indoor bike that you set it up where you want it <laughs> in your home gym, <laughs> yeah. ideally. <laughs> yeah, I'll be looking for a new house if I don't get it set up for the next day or two. <laughs> so, with the sort of, it's almost like a softening of the line between mountain bikes and gravel at the moment because. Gravel bikes just seem to be getting more mountain bike-esque and mountain bikes seem to be getting more gravel-esque. Is there any... So I'm just riding a traditional. I'm actually riding a local brand in Ireland, 51. They're going to do cool custom bikes. But I haven't played around with like suspension, dropper posts. Is there anything from the mountain bike world that you're like, oh, you need to try that on a gravel bike? Mm. Um. I do have the suspension fork. Um, I've yet to put on a dropper post on my gravel bike, but I think I think the biggest thing that I can take from mountain bike to gravel is an understanding of my equipment and how to manage that equipment and how to set up that equipment for varying types of courses. Because at this juncture in gravel, it seems like anything goes. And there's so many different types of courses out there. There's courses that are borderline a road race where I'm putting slick tires on my bike um, and just making it as aero as possible. And then there's others that are quite chunky where I might even be wanting to run a tire insert and have some suspension um, and setting my bike up to be a lot burlier of a setup. And I think that just that understanding of playing with PSI and it takes a lot of experience in order to be able to feel the right sensations on the bike, to know how your equipment is responding to terrain. Um, and I think that that's learned over time. And that's probably the biggest advantage, I would say, that mountain biking has given me in gravel. Yeah, I feel like you're at a huge advantage if you're coming from mountain biking into gravel as opposed to my background is coming from road into gravel. Like, I know basically zero. Like, <laughs> I was at a gravel race at the weekend and people are asking me, like, what pressure are you running? I'm like, I don't know. It's just, like, hard. Like, it's hard. <laughs> my rationale was, I go hard, and if it's too hard, it's easier to let air out than put air in. That was, like, my thinking process. Right. But I'm, like, carrying plugs and sealant. I've never used any of this stuff. Like if I want a wheel, I stick my wheel up in the air and someone hands me a new wheel. <laughs> so it's a, it's a totally different world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think especially watching the Lifetime Grand Prix as well, I think we've seen that the mountain bikers likely have an advantage on the gravel. You know, the road racers are they are going to have an advantage probably in their understanding of pack dynamics um, and how to save energy the best across those long races. Us mountain bikers, we just want to go from the gun and are probably a lot more likely to burn matches unnecessarily, uh, get a little bit excited out there. But then again, there's not that many gravel races where a road racer is going to come in with teammates and so they're probably experiencing a different type of dynamic than they're used to as well anyways. And I do agree with you maybe at a local level, but like if you look at the World Gravel Championships, like the roadies just lit everyone the fuck up. Like mm -hmm. the first nine places in the elite men's race were all World Tour road riders. 
their engine is just so, so big. And you can take like the best gravel guys in the US, like Keegan Swanson. But when you put them in against Vanderpoel and these guys, they're, you know, they're like putting house kittens in against cheetahs. Like they're a different breed. But the top three women were mountain bikers. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> but I wonder, does that highlight the difference between men's and women's world tour and the lack of resources that are distributed to the women's world tour as opposed to the men's world tour? Because mm-hmm. they're nearly like science experiments in the men's world tour. Um, on the road you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I, the road world is just so separate from me that I... <laughs> I I don't have the knowledge needed to really compare and contrast other than I know that women are fighting hard for that equality right now. Could you ever see yourself moving over to the road? I mean, never say never, but it's not something that's even remotely on my radar. I love the off-road way too much to foresee that in my future. So the trend at the moment is for a lot of roadies to start going into gravel. But we were talking about then the line between gravel and mountain bike is getting slightly eroded. What's a nice transitionary mountain bike race uh, internationally for someone? So I'm thinking very selfishly about myself where I've gone from road into gravel and I've raced like Badlands and Rift and some local gravel races here. But now I'm like, getting curious about mountain biking. Like what's an easy onboarding where you're not going to break your neck and your spine in the first race if you don't have great skills? Yeah, I mean, I think that traditionally Leadville has been a race that has kind of straddled that in between because there are there are a few technical sections where when someone tries to call it a gravel race, I will get defensive on behalf of Leadville because there are some sections that definitely, definitely make it a mountain bike race and require you to ride that mountain bike. I don't think you could get away with any form of a gravel bike. But there's also, it's not so technical that it's super scary. And there's also some pretty long fire road type of sections where any skills that you have from gravel will likely transfer over, you know, in the form of drafting and things like that. Um, and it's a longer mountain bike race where that endurance will be an important factor as well. You were going to say that, weren't you, after smoking everyone at Leadville? <laughs> oh, well, I definitely have a, a special place in my heart for Leadville at this point. <laughs> uh, talk me through the win. How did the day pan out for you? Uh, did everything go as planned or did it- Plan A soon become Plan Z, and you still manage to put off the win? Um, it was kind of a roundabout uh, race for me because I had actually separated my shoulder the week before the race. And so Wednesday before Leadville, I didn't even know if I'd be lining up because I couldn't lift my arm up beyond shoulder height at all. Um, and so I wasn't even really sure if I was going to race. So Thursday before I decided, okay, I guess I'll at least give it a go. And if I have to pull out, I have to pull out. So with the Saturday race, I drove there the Friday before, um, just kind of lined up without any expectations. And I think ultimately that was a huge blessing in disguise because it eliminated the nerves. It eliminated, you know, the need to sort of make something happen. Um, And instead I just let the race unfold, which is sometimes the best thing that you can do. Um, and I took the lead at mile 70 
And that was really the moment where it was like, oh, wow, this could actually be a really good day. It wasn't until I took that lead that I even accepted what was about to happen. (laughs) Was that the moment where you're like, give me a pen, let me sign these multi-year deals? (laughs) No, I mean, so much of my focus is on the World Cups um, that that's really been where a lot of, like I said, where a lot of my training and mindset has been. But I've really enjoyed these long races this year as well. So, you know, something like winning Leadville has just really reassured me that I did the right thing this year by leading that very challenging schedule and balancing both because it is challenging. And I've been on the road a lot this year and racing a lot this year. Um, But I've seen so much reward on both sides of the spectrum at both the World Cups and the long races that I wouldn't have wanted to give either of those up. And there's like a couple of events in American cycling that kind of transcend the regional and they're just, they're iconic events. And I know the Lifetime Grand Prix is a super series, but in those you have Leadville and you have Unbound. And, you know, for international notoriety, you could probably win a World Cup, which is maybe harder to win. But when you win a Leadville, it's just international recognition instantly. And it must be a dream for sponsors and a dream for you. And a lot of vindication that training's going well, you're on the right path, and this career is actually all panning out pretty well for you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'll admit, this was my second time doing Leadville. Uh, only my second time. And the first time I was there, I just had so much respect for the event itself. It was just, it was a bucket list item. Um, And watching everyone race and the experience, I realized why it is such an internationally known event. And so to go from kind of checking that off the bucket list to then winning it the next year is it was definitely a dream come true. And I knew how big of a deal it would be to win an event like Leadville, but I don't think until it actually happens, you can really internalize. Like you said, it's it's that validation. Like, of course, it's great whatever sort of, whatever you can get from it on the back end is just a bonus, you know, if, it, if you can sign an extra contract or something like that, that's wonderful. But For me, it's always been about, like we said at the start, it's about fulfilling those personal goals. And like you said, also in this is it's crossing that finish line and realizing, wow, like training has gone well. I've done the right things. I've made improvements. Like look where we were and look where we've come. And it really felt like a full circle moment for me in my career. I raced a gravel race a few weeks ago, Lakeland Gravel Rounder here in Ireland. And this kind of scene was hanging around. They'd music and they'd barbecues and they'd beers and stuff afterwards. And it was interesting just chatting to some of the competitors who were way back to field and, you know, position 100, position 200, position 500. And almost all of them thought about quitting at some point or thought, oh, I'm going to have to push my bike at some point. And I was just saying to them, that's not a unique experience of being in position 400. I turned one corner, there was a steep climb. I was second on the road, trying as hard as I could to bridge the gap across to the leader. I got to one climb and I was like, 
I'm going to have to walk up this. I am like, I can't get up this climb. And then I seen a photographer at the top of it. And I was like, shit, I can't push the bike up here with a photographer. And I'm in like P2 on the road. But everyone has those insecurities or those weak moments that maybe I won't get through this event. And I've heard you speaking on other podcasts about that as well, that you're like, you're a professional bike rider. And you're like, oh my God, am I going to finish today? And it's, I think it's refreshing to hear that for people who aren't at the front of a race. Yeah, I think that's something really beautiful about these long mass start races that we don't get in other racing formats. You know, in the World Cup, it's all the best riders in the world racing against each other. And so we almost level out each other's abilities. Um, You're almost not able to see, you know, as much of a difference between one person and the other. So people can't relate to it is what I'm trying to say. But when you're out on these long events and an amateur and a pro are racing on the same course, it's a lot easier to be able to say, oh my gosh, wasn't the top of that climb just absolutely impossible? And we can relate (laughs) that it felt impossible to both of us. It doesn't matter if it took me, you know, one hour and it took them three hours, we still experience that exact same emotion. And we're still working equally as hard. It doesn't matter who's going faster or slower. And that was actually something, a question that someone asked me before Leadville is, who, before I won even, who do you think's working harder, the fastest person on course or the person bringing up the tail end? And we're both working equally as hard. It's silly to think that I would be working any harder than someone who's trying to achieve, like we said, they could be winning their own race, their own goal, They're trying to make the time cut. That's their victory for the day. And it's equally as important as anything I achieve. Well, you know what? They're working just as hard as you, but they're doing it for twice as long. Yeah. And in an event like Leadville, twice as long means probably getting caught out in the rain. It means being cold. It means bringing more food. It means bringing more water, which means you're carrying more equipment, which means it's heavier, which makes it harder. I have all the respect in the world for people who send many more hours out on that course than I do. Yeah, because I lined up for the start of Badlands, which is like a 780 kilometer uh, event across the desert in Granada. And on the start line, I was looking at it, and I was like, that guy has like very little food with him and like no sleeping <laughs> system. And then I was like, he's going to finish in two days. It's going to take your average person four or five, six days to finish this. So yeah, there's a, you need a lot less stuff if you're going on a two-day holiday or if you're going on a six-day holiday. It's just like the physicalities of what you need to bring. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, in some ways it becomes a different challenge when you're out there longer. But like I said, it's still so cool because we're experiencing the same thing and we're going through those same highs and lows. And like you mentioned, there's times out there where I'm thinking, am I ever going to make it? Like, can I even do this? It's just, it's too hard. It's, it's too hard. And then I'll have to pause and remember that there's hundreds of other people feeling the same way. And even though it's an individual sport, I think you can gain a lot of strength from recognizing how many people are going through those same emotions at the same time. And just to finish up, Hannah, how is Olympic qualification going? Are you hopeful? Are you 
pessimistic? Should we book our tickets to go and see you? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I was on the Olympic long team in 2020. And so I'm very hopeful to make the short list this go around. Um, they have yet to publish the exact qualification standards. And so we're a little bit, uh, we're training hard, but in sort of a holding pattern in terms of knowing what those qualifications are going to be. But we will definitely be chasing after those uh, next season. And by the qualifications, I mean the U.S.-specific qualifications. Yeah, notoriously flaky uh, criteria for <laughs> especially mountain bike. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's been a learning process for everybody. <laughs> uh, Hannah, thanks very much for chatting to me on the Roadman podcast. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.